before a show or before a tour, I will actually sit in my living room and pretend like I'm doing a concert for an invisible audience. And I actually tell my stories and, and interact with, you know, an empty room. Michelle McLaughlin is one of the most successful artists in one of the most successful areas of the music business, solo piano. Recently, Michelle was in Boise for a performance, and she sat down with me to talk about her music, her influences, and the importance of streaming for solo piano artists. I'm Walt Huntsman. All of that and more, next in episode 28 of Measured Voices. I was reading through your, your biography on your website, and the way it's worded, it made it sound like you were pretty much born to play piano and, and to play the style of music that you play. Is that fair to say, you think? Yeah, I would say that, I mean, ever since I can remember, if there was a piano in the room, I needed to go touch it. Like I just, it's a magnet for me. And I've always just wanted to play and, and create music and, you know, I would, I would listen to music, um, in like kindergarten and I would go home and recreate what I would hear by ear. And that's sort of what taught me how to play. And it just, I, I, I gravitate towards pianos. I have to go touch them. You, you, you talked about playing by ear, which actually is a, a great segue into the second question I had. Uh, you're self-taught on the piano. And I wasn't sure how to word this, but I'm wondering what, if, if anything, do you think you missed out on by not taking lessons? And, and what do you think that not having that formal training gave you? Well, I think missing out wise, I, you know, as an adult now with, with albums and, and the way I compose, I feel as though I am limited just based off of my own, you know, my own box of what I've learned and what I know. And I think that lessons or, you know, a little bit more training would have um, opened my world to different styles of playing. You know, I would love to be able to play ragtime and blues and jazz, but that stuff is just out of reach for me because I don't know how to play it. And the only way that I would learn how to play it is by, you know, watching other colleagues or friends play it and then kind of learning to emulate that. But but if I had the opportunity to go back, I think I would have, you know, appreciated the ability to learn the different styles. And then, you know, of course, to read music as well. Not that I would read music now. I don't think that I would ever sit down with sheet music and play someone else's song. But the ability to learn the different style through playing someone else's song would be really beneficial, I think. Do you find any uh, uh, advantages for you by not having had, being locked into a, a style of... Uh, of, of training or, or whatever? I would say that that in that regard, probably just that I'm a lot more free-flowing and I don't feel that I'm, you know, constrained by the technicality of, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing at the piano with the mindset of, oh, that's not what I'm, you know, with the classical world, it's very technical and very precise. And so I don't feel like I'm limited with that because I don't understand or know, you know, what that even entails. So I'm, I'm more free-flowing and can just play what feels right more than what should be right. Now, you, you, put, you released your first album in 2000 for Families and Friends, and, and you've been uh, recording pretty much constantly <laughs> ever since. But it was, uh, according to your biography again, another six years before you, you decided that you could do this full-time professionally. Uh, what, uh, what was it that turned 
that around for you? And, and what, if anything, did you take away from the time that you were, you were still dreaming and, but not quite there yet? Well, in those early days, it was more of, I was just creating music to share as a gift with other people. And so I never really had the intention or the idea really of making it a career or, you know, trying to make a living doing music. It, it really truly just started off as, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to write these songs and I'm going to share, you know, share it as a present for Christmas. And then I read David Nevue's book about how to market yourself online and, you know, promote yourself on the internet. And I thought, well, what, you know, what the heck, I'll just put my music on iTunes and see what happens. And, and then that is sort of what inspired me the most was when, you know, seeing, seeing people all over the world buying my music. And then that changed my mindset of, okay, I'm not going to do this as gifts anymore. I'm going to release this for the world to appreciate. And, and that's what really started the journey. And that would have been, I guess, in 2005. How does that idea of music as a, as a gift still, if it does, permeate what you do? Well, it does, it, because, well, I write music for me. You know, it's my therapy at the piano. This is where I go to release all of my, my stress and tension and woes and everything. But because I know that there's people out there that want to hear it and appreciate it and are looking forward to having new music from me, that sort of drives my, my you know, um, dedication to get a project done and get it out there as quickly as possible so that people can enjoy it and really, you know, appreciate all of the work that I put in and just releasing my emotions into the keys. Now you've, you've released 18 albums and, and on top of that done a number of concerts uh, mm-hmm. throughout the years. I would imagine not having done as many concerts <laughs> that it can be a challenge perhaps to, to keep the music fresh. What do you do to keep the music fresh for you? The old songs Old or, songs? In, in, when, when you're performing uh, you know, for other people, what, what keeps it fresh for you? It's practice. So I, I, I actively think to myself, okay, I'm going to be performing a concert in this place, and these are the popular songs, or these are the songs that I want to play. And so then I will you know, make a set list that I, that I keep in front of the piano. And for weeks before a show or before a tour, I will actually sit in my living room and pretend like I'm doing a concert for an invisible audience and I actually tell my stories and and interact with, you know, an empty room because um, that way I can just be completely ready and prepared and grounded in front of an audience because if you feel scattered in front of an audience, it, it it's the worst. <laughs> it's the worst to not be prepared. And so that's how I stay fresh with those songs. But I always have a... Um, probably about 30 songs on my mind at all times that, you know, if somebody asked, I could probably play those 30 songs without having practiced them. Now, your music uh, is, is part of the overarching category of new age, but like a, a, some other artists, your music tends to be a little more uh, melodic than some of those artists that get put into that category. How do you describe your music to people who hear that category, New Age, and think it all sounds the same? Uh, what do you do, to, or what do you tell them, or what do you do to, to make them know that your music differs from those other people? 
Well, I like to tell people that I, it's musical storytelling. So I'm not classical, I'm not jazz, I'm not blues. It's kind of a mixture of all these different styles. And that really what my music is doing is telling a story and describing, you know, an experience or something that inspired me in my life. And, you know, the term new age is really, it does an injustice to the solo piano community because we're not we're not new age, but that's the category we get lumped into when it comes to award ceremonies and, you know, the music industry. Um, but I, I find that to describe the music and to tell people that it's musical storytelling kind of gives it a like, oh, that's interesting. I want to know more about that than rather than just saying, well, I play classical or I play jazz or, you know. Um, and then I always tell people, you have to experience it with us in order to truly understand what it is that we are, you know, what we're doing here. Well, at this point, I think maybe we should we should hear a little musical storytelling. Uh, if you have a song you could share with us and tell us about it. Sure. Um, I am releasing singles right now, and um, I have a song that I released, um, I guess it would be November just this last year, and it is a song about following your dreams and not giving up on things that you know you are looking forward to in your life. Um, I followed my dream to be a musician, and I look back on the last 19 years, um, and I just am so grateful for everything that has happened in that journey. And so I wrote this song um, about that journey, and it's called Triumph. Okay, so we'll hear Triumph.
you talk about going to a George Winston concert when you were uh, eight, and he's a name that even for people who aren't familiar with new age or solo piano styles of music, they've heard the name at some point. Talk about some of the other influences uh, on, on you as you were developing your own style. Well, I started with George Winston, and I learned to play piano by, by you know, playing his music by ear. And then um, I would also listen to Mannheim Steamroller and oh, wow. Fresh Air. Had some piano songs that I really loved, and so I would, you know, emulate those. And, um, and then later on, I would listen to a lot of Jim Brickman, and I listened to a lot of Paul Cardall, um, and Ben Folds, Billy Joel, um, you know, sort of in the rock, the rock field, I really enjoyed, you know, the piano style there. Um, and then as an adult um, in my career now, my, my biggest influences are Ludovico and Audi and Chad Lawson, Doug Hammer and Neil Patton. Now, you mentioned a couple names in there that that don't normally get uh, associated with uh, your style of music, like Billy Joel. What kinds of things did you take from those artists uh, as you were developing your style? It's not really so much that I took away anything developing my style. It would be more like um, watching them perform or listening to their music and knowing that the piano was such a driving force in their music and really loving the rock element and the, the, you know, concert, big, you know, music element of that really inspired me. So I would listen and then I would want to go to the piano and try, you know, writing my own music in a bigger style or kind of jam out or try and play some of uh, those songs by ear. And that would help develop my playing style, you know, as I progressed in my own compositions. Let's uh, speaking of compositions. Let's let's talk a little bit about your songwriting style. Um, in your recent appearance here in Boise, you mentioned that uh, you these days tend to write mostly, if not all, happy songs. Um, what uh, what types of themes are you drawn to? And and as an instrumentalist, and I've asked this of, of a couple of other instrumentalists. What kinds of things do you try to do to convey those themes in the music itself? For me, it's more about the emotion of the song. So if I am at the piano trying to work out sadness in my life, like a loss of a relationship or, you know, struggle with my child or whatever, you know, those things are going on in my life that I'm needing the music to for my own therapy. When I'm writing songs, it's more about the feeling of how that... Um, you know, we, my sister and I call it, it hurts my heart. And whenever there's music that hurts my heart, those are the songs that I gravitate to the most. And so that tends to be the music that I write the most is songs that would, you know, really hurt someone's heart. <laughs> and, and I love those minor keyed kind of just sad songs that pull at the heartstrings. Um, but like we talked about at the concert last night, I, am so happy in my life right now and everything is so wonderful that I'm finding it hard to tap into that sadness and to write sad music. And so everything that's coming out right now has a much more jovial feel. Um, so it's not that I'm intentionally trying to write pieces with a specific feel or theme behind them. It's more just what's happening in my own soul at the moment and that's coming out into the music that I'm composing. It sounds like Hurts My Heart ought to be a song title somewhere. <laughs> I know. <laughs> as, as a songwriter myself, I, I, I like to write in minor keys, too, and my, my wife tells me when I bring one to her, that's oh, another Debbie Downer song. <laughs> so I, I get that a bit. Um, your songwriting process, do you try to write every day, or do you have do you, do you carve out specific periods to try to write? 
I do try and write every day. Um, it, it's not so much writing as more impro- improvisation. I try and sit at the piano every day and just improvise and, and let my fingers go where they're going to go. And that's usually when my songs will be born. Something will catch my ear when I'm just in, impro- in you know, improvisation mode. And I'll be like, oh, I like that. And then I'll develop uh, you know, off of whatever it is that's that's caught my attention. But I also have started a Monday morning improv series on YouTube where every Monday I sit at the piano, first try, first take, I record and write um, a piece to just sort of, you know, force myself to write in the moment without thinking too much about it and to stretch myself out of my box of comfort zone. And so those times I'm I'm actually sitting with the intention of writing. But the majority of the time I just, I lose myself in the keys and see what happens. Now, when you're writing, do, do, and you're actually in, maybe you've moved beyond the improvisation into the actual songwriting mode, do things kind of, do, do pieces come in big chunks or in a rush, or do you tend to, do things tend to build a little more slowly for you? The bare bones of the piece, the actual framework of it will happen instantly. Um, usually it's the, so my style of writing will be, you know, the main theme and then, and then kind of a repeat of the main theme, maybe in a different octave or, you know, a variation of that theme. And then you'll notice that I always kind of take the song off into another direction for a little while, and then I'll come back to that main theme. That's kind of my standard framework if you listen to my music. And it's that segue off into something else is where I always get stuck. It'll take me a long time to figure out where do I want to go and how do I come back. Um, And some pieces, that will happen very quickly, and I'll have a piece, you know, a complete piece um, within several days, and then I'll just practice that until it's fresh under my fingers. And other times I'll have, um, like Triumph, for example, that one came together very quickly, um, but other times there'll be pieces where I'll, I'll sort of, you know, sit on that middle section for a really long time, and then eventually it'll come, and then I'll, and then I'll release it. Okay. Now, on your, on your website, in, the, in your biography page, you, you invite people to listen to your music in order to get what you call a more in-depth biography experience. I'm wondering, what are some of the things that, that make your music biographical or, or autobiographical, do you think? Well, the majority of the music that I write is based off of my experiences or my feelings or things that are happening to me in my own life. And so I, I always tell people that my music is very much a, a diary of my life, a musical diary. And you can tell what kind of year I've had based off of, you know, the album. If there's a lot of darker, heavier songs, it's been a harder year. This next album, obviously, is going to be very light and fun. Um, but but it very much is a representation of what's happening in my life at the moment because that's how I write is bringing, you know, bringing my experience to the keys. So your music's sort of a, a musical journal, journal, as it were. Absolutely, yep. Okay. Well, at this point, uh, maybe we can hear another song. Okay. Um, would you like to hear a big piece or a... a, a... Oh, let's, let's go big. Okay. I, um, <clears throat> I have a song called Dismissed. And it is about a lonely street performer who mm-hmm. is searching for an adoring audience. And she's going from town to town. And she's performing in the streets. And what she's finding is 
a, you know, people are just ignoring her and passing her by and not paying attention. And this hurts her feelings and makes her feel dismissed and forgotten and unappreciated. And so you can hear kind of that, that frustration in the piece. And then she thinks back to times where she's had an adoring audience um, and how much happiness and joy that brought to her. And then at the end of the song, she finally has her audience. And people will ask me, is this about you? And it's, this is not a song about me. And it's just a, it's a story piece that I've written. This one's called Dismissed. Okay, Dismissed.
I like that song a lot. Thank you. Uh, there are parts of it, especially that, that little melody line toward the end that I think repeats in several other places in the song, kind of reminded me of uh, almost a uh, circus or carnival kind of atmosphere. But I, I really liked the way the, uh, the lower register uh, in, in spots created sort of a, a tension and suspense as if there's there's danger <laughs> in a way is is that is that something you were you were shooting for with that song do you think or well when i so it's funny because we were just talking about how i write music that comes from my soul and then i just played you a piece that has nothing to do with my life which is really funny <laughs> but uh but when i was writing the piece it it to me it was more of a frustration release piece and that particular section with the baseline jumping back and forth and kind of providing that tension and the and the suspense was um, was really just all about letting my own personal frustration out at the moment but it did remind me very much of you know like carnival or a clown and that's kind of where the idea came in of this you know this clown style street performer who's trying to find an audience and then the once I realized that I was like okay that's what this song is going to be about which is interesting because you know on the on the surface clowns are happy but on the inside, they generally tend to be very depressed people. <laughs> yes, and I think I think clowns are scary for a lot of people. They're not really, you know, there's jovial clowns, but there's also very scary clowns. <laughs> <laughs> now, you were recently uh, part of a Rolling Stone article called the uh, called Inside the Secretly Secretly. I'm going to try that again. <laughs> called Inside the Secretly Lucrative World of Solo Piano Music. Now, what were your uh, overall impressions of, of the article, the finished piece, as it came out? I was really thrilled with how the piece came out because the original intention of the article was not to be about the solo piano community. Um, I was contacted by um, a friend of mine over at CD Baby, who is my music distributor, and they had been um, conversing with Rolling Stone about um, solo um, independent musicians who were, you know, making a living doing music and Rolling Stone wanted to interview me about my, you know, my experience becoming a successful solo pianist. And when I did the interview with Rolling Stone, we had a lot of conversation about the solo piano community and how we're very um, connected and tight with one another and we all collaborate and share and, and communicate. And they were very fascinated with, um, with that, because in the music community, generally, people are very standalone and, you know, there's no camaraderie. And so they wanted to um, share part of that story in the interview. And I gave them some contacts of people that um, were also making a living in the industry. And then they had morphed that into really a wonderful piece about our genre in, in general and our community in general. Um, um, I couldn't have been happier with how really it brought such a positive light to our tiny little genre that's not mainstream. Now, a good chunk of that article, uh, as I recall reading through it, talks about streaming music as a, as a, if not primary, a major source of revenue for most uh, successful, I guess at least, uh, solo piano performers. Um, and it talked about the potentially shaky future of Pandora, which I guess has been a, a major uh, player where solo piano artists are concerned. Um, how concerned are you about that future? And as an artist, what steps can you or are you taking to kind of protect yourself or prepare for the, a future streaming landscape that maybe doesn't have Pandora or maybe has a lesser version of Pandora? 
It's definitely a major concern for a lot of us. Um, when we realized that Sirius XM was going to acquire Pandora, a lot of us were like, you know, freaking out about, oh no, what is that going to mean for our streaming income and our exposure more than anything? And um, it's still uncertain. We've we've talked to people in the industry um, and gotten some answers. There seems to be, you know, a positive look forward about they're not going to change the platform. In fact, they're going to work very hard to um, increase the exposure for the platform. Um, but, but we're lucky in that, you know, we're as independent musicians, we have multiple income sources, you know, we're making, we're making income from our, our sheet music sales and from concerts and from streaming income and iTunes downloads and licensing, you know, from television and, and that sort of thing. And so I think that if things were to change with Pandora drastically, um, we would just, or me personally, I would, I would, you know, focus my attention on other platforms that were bringing in the exposure. You know, Spotify would be one that I would spend a lot of time with. Apple Music would be another. Um, I would, you know, continue to try and tour more and just, you know, bring my exposure and my income in from the other sources to kind of help offset what that loss would be from Pandora, which would be massive. With, with the growth of uh, digital music through streaming and through downloads, is there a temptation at times to concentrate solely on that and, and give up recording CDs? I think that, yes, streaming is definitely the direction that musicians um, are focusing on now, especially in releasing singles, because then we're continually releasing music and having fresh content to consume on a regular basis. But having CDs is also important for shows and for people that still want to be able to have a tangible product. Um, so for me personally, I would continue to release CDs and I would continue to have basically my music on every platform in every style of, um, you know, consumption availability. So streaming, downloads, sheet music, CDs, all of that would still be, you know, something that I would offer on a regular basis. Now, your, your most recent album, Life, came out in 2017, but you've been re releasing singles uh, fairly regularly, I think, since then. Do you have a new CD in the works or planned? I do. So the, the whole goal here is to, um, with the singles, once I have about 13 or 14 of those released, I will put those on an album and release that as an album and have that um, available at shows and something to promote um, for radio and marketing purposes. And then um, I am in the process of working on an improvisation album with my Monday morning improv series. I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, please put these on an album. And so I thought it would be fun to, you know, just sit at the piano and improvise and capture an entire album's worth of material. Um, that's in the works for this year. And then I am also in the process of doing a collaboration album where I'm going to uh, work with other musicians, violinists, cellists, guitarists, and then release those songs um, on an album as well. So you will be busy this year. Yes. <laughs> so I guess the question then is, when do you sleep? Um, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, I don't have much left to ask, but one thing I want to know is, is, after what we've talked about, what else is there, do you think, about Michelle McLaughlin that people might want to know or ought to know about you? Well, I think that um, I... I I would love for people to hear my music in every available um, streaming site. So you can go and listen to me on Pandora and Spotify. And then if you like it, you can, you know, um, create playlists and share it with your friends on social media. Um, just 
to be able to have more exposure and bring my brand and my music out to more people who aren't aware of, you know, what it is that I'm offering. And that would be my, you know, my hope for the year coming forward. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for sitting down with me and, and, and spending some time talking about your music. And I think if we can, maybe we can end with uh, one more song. Sure. Um, I'll play one of my favorites that I've been performing lately. Um, it's on my Christmas album. It's the only original song on my third Christmas album. Um, it's not a Christmas song, though, so I'm not going to play a Christmas song for you. But it, uh, it's a song about um, unity and togetherness and tolerance and love and that we as a human race should, should um, spend a lot more time um, embracing one another instead of having this divisive um, separation that we're going through in this, in this tumultuous time. Um, so this song is very much a giant virtual hug to everyone. It's called Peace. All right. Well, thank you again, and we'll, we'll end with the Peace.
thanks to Michelle McLaughlin. You can follow her on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find those links and more on our webpage at measured-voices.blogspot.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Measured Voices. Join me for the start of our second year when I sit down with Dustin Morris. Until then, I'm Walt Huntsman, and this has been Measured Voices. Measured Voices.